would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. The title of the message today is Wake Up Call. Is anybody staying in a tight place this morning? You had to have a wake up call. You had to call the front desk. And, or maybe you had to say, Mom, would you please wake me up? Or something along that. You set your alarm clock. Hotels are famous for wake up calls. And of course, now they have uh, alarm clocks in the room, but people don't know how to work those. You ever stayed in a hotel where the alarm went off at like 2 o'clock in the morning? That's because the person that stayed in there the night before thought they would just leave you a present and uh, wake you up. So first thing I do when I go in the hotel room, I unplug the alarm clock. And I set my phone so it wakes me up. But, you know, why do we set up wake-up calls? Why do we set alarms? Well, it's because we don't want to miss something. We don't want to oversleep. If you've got a flight taken off at 7 o'clock in the morning, you need to set your alarm early enough to get ready and get to the airport. You're staying in a hotel. You don't want to miss the Continental Buffet, right? Now they call them deluxe. I don't know what makes them deluxe. <laughs> it's because they have bagels, I guess, instead of donuts. I don't know. But, you know, the deluxe Continental Breakfast, uh, they, they advertise that like it's something you can't just get anywhere. So this morning it's talking about a wake-up call, and it really is the writer of Hebrews saying to a group of people, you need to wake up. You might miss something. This is important. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 6. And I want to say at the outset, this is one of the more controversial passages in Scripture. Uh, denominations have split over Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, if they'll all just listen to this message, I'll clear it up for them. Okay? No, I'm just kidding. There's people that will interpret this different ways. Let me tell you the big three. They look at Hebrews chapter 6, and we're only going to cover the first nine verses of Hebrews chapter 6. But the, the kind of the big three interpretations are either this is hypothetical. So the writer of Hebrews is, is playing out a scenario that's impossible, and yet he's, it's hypothetical to make a point. Or it's possible to once be a Christian and somehow lose that, lose your salvation. Or number three, he's speaking to people who are not yet believers. So what do you do when you come to a passage that's very controversial or very hard to understand, two uh, hermeneutical or hermeneutical um, principles you need to know this morning. First is you've got to take it based on the whole of Scripture. So if you come to a passage of Scripture and you're like, this is difficult and my interpretation of it seems to contradict everything else in Scripture, then you have the wrong interpretation. The second thing is look at context. What's right around it? What's the writer been talking about up to that point? What's he talking about? After that point. So what has the writer been talking about? We've talked about Hebrews. is written by an author that we don't know. Some Bibles will have the Apostle Paul's letter to the Hebrews. We don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. He wrote 13 other letters, so we give him credit for one he might not have written. But nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Hebrews, did it say who wrote the letter. So we just say, we don't know. The writer of Hebrews. Who's he writing to? It's real obvious that he's writing to a group of believers and close to believers. <laughs> But their background is they're Jews. They're Jews who are now living in and around Rome and facing difficult times. And at times he calls them brethren. And we read brethren and think, well, they must be believers, right? They're church members. No, he's writing them as fellow countrymen because obviously he's a Jew. Writing and he's basically a nationalistic brethren. Except for one time he calls them holy brethren. I think he is talking to believers at that point. We get to Hebrews chapter 6. Let me just read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, 
leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ or Messiah, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he's basically saying you need to grow up. You need to grow to maturity. You're incomplete. Is it possible for somebody to go to church all their life and not be a Christian? Yeah, the truth sadly is it is possible to sit under the teaching of God's Word your entire life. You could be a church member. You could sing in the choir. You could help receive the offering. I mean, you could do all these things. You could have gone on youth trips, mission trips, whatever. And if all you've done is got a taste of religion and never got the real thing, how miserable that is for that person. You you have missed the whole power of God in your relationship with Jesus. And you've tried to kind of wing it on your own. So yes, it's possible. And that's who I believe he's writing to here. I've, I've said this before. He's writing to Jews who've forsaken Judaism. But as we've read already in the first five chapters, some of them are looking backwards and thinking, I'm thinking about turning back. Kind of like, and he uses this example, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, spending 40 years in the desert. They even said, why have you left? Us? Why have you led us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Egypt, for them, was not a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, they had these nostalgic views back. At least back there, we had a home to live in. We didn't have to move every day. And we had food to eat. Yeah, well, yeah, we were also beaten as slaves. And God's taking you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And you would have gotten there a lot quicker if you weren't so stubborn and disobedient. And so I believe he's writing to that group of people in these first few verses. He's writing to people that are this close. God is right in their face. And they're having second thoughts. They're hedging. They're on the fence. They haven't come down on one side or the other yet. In fact, some of them are thinking about going and jumping the other side of the fence. And so he says, therefore, leaving. Important word here. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings. The word leaving means to forsake. It means total detachment. It means separation. What the writer is saying is, this isn't a matter of you adding something so that you can be saved. This is a matter of you leaving everything behind that you've clung to as dear. Now, what do we know about the Jews? Listen, they knew the Old Testament. The Old Testament had prophesied of a Messiah that was to come. The problem is they just couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus was that Messiah. Why? Did he contradict something in Scripture? Absolutely not. Fulfilled 330 prophecies about himself in the Old Testament. But they had read the Old Testament and painted their own picture. It wasn't biblical. It was a picture they believed this is what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to come in on a white horse. He's going to conquer our enemies. And Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey and was crucified for crying out loud on the cross. And so they couldn't accept that. Some of them obviously had come to faith in Christ. There was a church in and around Rome, probably some house churches. But some of these Jews had walked away from the past and hadn't yet quite walked into the future. And so he says, listen, you need to leave the old behind. You need to be fulfilled and completed in the new And then he talks to him about some of these elementary teachings about the Christ, literally the Messiah. That that was a word they knew. We have a deliverer that's coming just like Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. They're waiting on now the perfect fulfillment of that. They're waiting on the Messiah. Well, the Messiah had come. We didn't have to go back and lay this foundation all over again. 
fact, he says, leave the elementary teachings about the Christ. Press on to maturity, literally completion. Not laying again a foundation. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the foundation. But he's saying we don't have to keep laying that foundation over and over again. It's already there. In fact, you need to know there's now a cornerstone on that foundation. His name is Jesus. And then he mentioned six Old Testament concepts. Everything that he mentions here are teachings in the Old Testament. It would have been part of a Jewish young man or a Jewish young woman's upbringing. They would have learned about these six things. Just briefly, one uh, is not laying a foundation about repentance from dead works. The works of the law were dead. They only showed how much we need a Savior. What, what The Old Testament laws, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was hundreds of other laws. The Jews thought, I will get to God by keeping these laws. And they realized the impossibility of that. You know what they started doing? They started narrowing it down. We can't keep all hundred of them. Let's just keep the big three. In fact, remember they went to Jesus one time and said, what's the greatest commandment? You know why they asked that question? Because they thought, if we just keep that one, maybe God will be all right with us. And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your mind, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. You know what? You can kind of put all the commandments into those two thoughts. If you love God with all your heart, you're not going to break the Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to break the part of the Ten Commandments that deals with your neighbor or the other hundreds of laws throughout the Old Testament. But he says, leave that stuff behind. Listen, the law has been fulfilled. It's come to completion. Jesus didn't nullify the law. He fulfilled it. So we don't have to lay the foundation of that again or faith towards God. You think, well, what's wrong with faith toward God? The problem is it stopped short of them because all they thought of God was God the Father. They didn't understand that God had stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. They rejected that. In fact, if you had asked one of these Jews that was close but hadn't quite crossed the line, or if you would asked a Jew that had no interest in Jesus, are you right with God? They'd have said, absolutely, two things make me right with God. Number one, the works that I do. And number two, I am an offspring of Abraham. So they looked at their performance and their heritage. Kind of like if you remember the story, the parable that Jesus told about the two men that went in to pray. Remember one of them was just praying as a tax collector. He just couldn't even look up. He's just saying, oh God, have mercy on me. Remember what the other one was saying? Oh God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I have. He left that day thinking he was okay with God. And yet Jesus said, no, the one that left right before God was the one that threw himself on the mercy of God and asked for grace. Recognizing his need for a Savior. The danger 2,000 years later now in this generation is somehow thinking, I'm okay with God because I was raised in a Christian home and I go to church and I give. And if you're born in the South, we add one to that. You eat with Mama and them on Sunday. You know? And, and we kind of think, as long as you do that, we, we add a few more things to it, some frills and dressings, but basically we're saying it's based on your behavior. And what is the writer of Hebrews saying? Those are dead works. They don't get you to God. In fact, Jesus put it, puts it this way in John 14, verse 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. What's he saying to the people who the writer of Hebrews is writing to? If you think you're right with God and you haven't gotten there through the person of Jesus Christ, you have fallen short. Also, instructions about washings. Unfortunately, trans, some translations have put the word baptism there. And the word baptism 
used everywhere else in the New Testament is a specific Greek word, baptizo. This is a form of it, but he's talking about ceremonial washings, ablutions. If you were a Jew, you would have had a receptacle at the entrance to your house, a stone water pot or a basin, a vase or a basin. You'd have had a place for people to come in and wash. And you didn't just wash to get your hands clean. It was ceremonial. And somehow they thought by going through these motions, I'm clean. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. He just said, you're clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. So we're not laying again this foundation about how often you bathe or what ceremony you've gone through in your cleansing. It's about Jesus. Or the laying on of hands. Now we see that come to fruition in the New Testament where they would set aside people by laying hands on them. Set aside leadership in the church by doing that. But what he's talking about here is this. You had to bring an animal to the temple for his blood to be spilled on behalf of your sin. And the way they did that is you would actually lay your hands to identify with this animal. To basically say, this animal is taking my place. And again, all they had was a foreshadowing. They had a taste. They had what was coming. And that is, ultimately, Jesus Christ was going to take the place not only of that sacrificial animal, but of me and you. We're not laying a foundation of the laying on of hands or the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. These are kind of groups in the Old Testament, very vague understanding of resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. That vague understanding comes to complete fulfillment into, into, into focus in the New Testament. And he said, this we will do with God permits. Here, here's the danger, as the writer of Hebrews is writing. When a pagan, when somebody didn't know Christ, came to church and decided, I'm not accepting this, they went back to their old way of life, and it was obvious, it was glaringly obvious, that person has rejected Christ. They're not a follower of Christ. For a Jew who's rejected Christ and go back to their old way, it's kind of hard because they're still doing some religious stuff. They just haven't made the transition from religion into relationship with Jesus Christ. So here comes the stern warning. Verses 4, 5, and 6. And he gives a specific case. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Let me walk carefully and slowly through this. I hope I don't bore you. But what is he saying? He's saying in the case, and I think to some degree he's writing to believers who's looking at other people and thinking, whatever happened to them? Are they still followers of Christ? In the case of, understand that in the, in the list that he's about to unpack, none of those terms are ever used for authentic salvation in the New Testament. They sound like really good things. They sound like good works. And at, at times, you're kind of inspecting the fruit a little bit, and you're thinking, well, that looks like Jesus. But none of those things are ever used to describe authentic faith in Christ or genuine salvation. You've once been enlightened. What does that mean? It means the light's been shown. All it means is this, to shine a light, to give light. It means you've come to church services. You've heard the good news of Jesus. You've had the light shined on the fact that you're a sinner separated from God. And you've never trusted Christ. You know the truth, but it was just an intellectual perception. In fact, the danger for them is they are more to be judged by the fact they've got all this light. And yet are still living and walking in darkness. 
They've even tasted the heavenly gift. At times you think, well, they must be believers. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, you know, I can go to the Sam's Buffet. Y'all don't know about the Sam's Buffet? You know, you go to Sam's, if you hit it at the right time of day, you can eat dinner. I mean, you know. But what do you do at the Sam's? You sample the stuff. You know, you sample. Sometimes it's meat. Sometimes it's something spread on a cracker. Sometimes it's something to drink. Sometimes it's fruit. You're sampling. And basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you've tasted. You've got the taste of it. But you haven't received it. You've just tasted it. You've just sampled it. You have sampled the heavenly gift. You've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, you think, so what? The Holy Spirit's come to live within them? That's not what he's saying. You've become an associate with the Holy Spirit. You've never possessed the Holy Spirit. You've just been around when He was active. You've seen the Holy Spirit show up in your meetings. You've seen Him move in people's lives. You've been a partaker of it. You've seen it. But He's never stepped into your life to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you, to make you a follower of Jesus Christ. And He uses the word tasted again. You've tasted the good Word of God. We're all doing that today. We're hearing the Word of God proclaimed, preached, read. We're tasting it. Anybody can taste it. In fact, Mark's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but Mark chapter 6, verse 20, talks about Herod had, had John the Baptist arrested. said he loved to go down and talk to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was sharing the good news of Jesus with him. He was intrigued by that, but he never became a follower of Christ. In fact, what did he ultimately do to John the Baptist? He cut his head off. So it's possible to hear it, it's possible to taste it, it's possible to be enlightened, it's possible to be around when the Holy Spirit is active, and yet never receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're just religious. In fact, you could join the church, you could do a lot of religious things. But if you've never turned from the old way and forsaken it, left it behind, and become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're just religious. And let, let me say this. If you're like that in this place, here's some of the truths about your life. You'll come to church and we'll sing songs and you're kind of going, it's dry. Two reasons that it's dry. One is that you hadn't been fellowship with God lately and you need to repent. The other is you don't know Jesus. What a dangerous place to be in. You've tasted all these things, and then you have fallen away. Literally, you've made defection from. You've gotten this close, and you've said, nah, I'm walking away from that. And then here comes the warning. He said, if that's happened, it is impossible to renew that person to repentance. It's impossible to get them back to that place. He's going to use this same word impossible a couple of more times. In, in chapter 10, he uses it to talk about the fact that the blood of the sacrifices could not take away your sin. Jesus ultimately would. The sacrifice just provided you temporary forgiveness. Then in Hebrews 11, he's going to talk about the fact of, that it's impossible to please God without faith. So he's using this word impossible to renew them, to bring them back. It's kind of like the parable that Jesus told. You remember the parable of the sower? It talks about the people, the seed that fell among the rocky soil. It, spr it springs up. It looks really good for a while. But it ends up dying because it had no depths of soil. It, it wasn't real. It was just temporary. There's something about faith in the Christian life that you can trust Jesus that your relationship with Him is not temporary. I'm going to close with that in a moment.
but it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, for those who look at this passage and say, well, this is proof that it's, it's possible to lose your salvation, the only problem I have with those people is they think you can get it back. People think, well, I was saved and lost it, saved and lost it. I've come to faith in Christ. I kind of walked away. I got saved all over again. The Bible doesn't teach that. And if you want to take this passage to indicate that you can lose your salvation, then the, the scary thing is you can't ever get it back. Now, I'm here to tell you I don't think you can lose it, and I'm going to share some verses with you at the end. But it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Why? Real important, these last couple of words here in this passage. Because you have again crucified to yourself Jesus, and you have put him to open shame. Here's the practicality of what you're doing. You get this close to Christ. You know the truth of the gospel. You know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You get this close. And in the case of these people are, they're Jewish. They can't accept that he's a Messiah. They walk away and walk back to that. Here's what they're saying. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and he died guilty as charged. You're trying to put him right back on the cross and shame him publicly. Because you're saying, I'm not going to receive his forgiveness of sin. Yeah, I know he died on the cross, but he must have deserved it. That's how you're shaming Christ, by rejecting what you know to be the truth about Jesus Christ. You're saying it wasn't enough. And then the last thing, salvation should be evident. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and I've seen some teenagers miraculously saved. I was at a church speaking in uh, Virginia, and uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but there was a group of literally Satan worshipers in the back of the room. And I didn't know who they were or why they were there, but I just I felt like, man, I'm preaching to this crowd in the back. One of them came to faith in Christ. He walked the aisle that night and gave his life to Christ. The next night, and I'll tell you a little more detail, this kid had been, teachers were afraid of this kid at school. They, if they would never be alone with him in the same part of the building. You were just afraid. You didn't know what he was going to do. So after that happened, the other kid started spreading rumors about me at school. The kid came in and said, uh, was crying. I said, what are you crying about? She said, nobody's coming tonight. I said, why? She said, because they were telling people at school that you sacrificed a cat last night. And I started laughing. She said, what are you laughing about? I thought, this place will be full tonight. You know, just the rumors are spreading, man. The, the news crew is going to show up. What's the crazy guy going to do tonight? But what happened the next night was I looked, and some of those kids came back. But the kid that got saved, I could not find him. I thought, what happened? I finally spotted him sitting on about the second row right in the middle of the youth group from this church. And guys, he had the same clothes on, but I didn't recognize him. Something had changed in his life. He had a different demeanor. He had a different appearance. It was just God had showed up in his life. I met him a few years later at a Promise Keepers event, and the pastor of the church said, do you recognize this guy? And I said, no, who is he? He said, that's the kid four years ago that gave his life to Christ. God saved him out of his background of worshiping the devil. And I went up to him and I said, man, it's great to hear what you're doing. He was studying for the ministry in school. And I said, you feel like God's calling you to preach? You feel like God's calling you to be a youth minister? And he said, I feel like God's calling me back to reach my friends who I used to hang out with that are lost and going to hell. That's the difference. <laughs> Had another kid in my church in Gastonia when I was youth pastor at Parkwood. who This kid was a kid I was a little afraid of. He had threatened me. And some of my youth had like pinned him up against the wall and said, you touch him, you've got to deal with us. I thought, way to go. Thank you. Well, this kid made a profession of faith. A mom called me who was also scared of the kid. She said, here's her exact word, do you think it'll take? It's kind of like, you know, we had taken a cutting off a tree and planted it in the ground. Saying, you think it's going to take? And you know what my answer was? Time will tell. He's given all the evidence right now. 
But time will tell if it's genuine or not. And some of you, I've heard the phrase, I heard it this week. Hey, we're not supposed to judge one another. We're just fruit inspectors. <laughs> well, okay, I get that to a point, but you can push that to a point where you, become, you think you've appointed yourself the Holy Spirit. I learned something growing up. My mom had one of these kind of baskets on the, on the table. Anybody recognize this? Look familiar? What is this? This is artificial fruit. All right, this banana, especially from out there, it looks good, doesn't it? Anybody want a banana? You're not going to get a lot out of this one. It's plastic. There's apples here, and man, they do a good job. I mean, these apples look delicious, don't they? You don't eat this apple. There's not a worm in it. It's just made out of something other than fruit. And the grapes, they look great. You know what can happen in the church? You can produce stuff that looks like fruit, but it's artificial. It's from you. It's not from God. In fact, some of you, you can produce this kind of apple. Listen to this. Can you hear that? That's not an apple. It's actually a gourd that I spray painted red to look like an apple. I was preaching in Gibsonville, North Carolina, and there was a family there called the Apples. And they had some of these in their house. In fact, the church was called Apples Chapel. So their family, 200 years earlier, had started this church, a whole family of apples. Those are seeds from the gourd after it dried out. So this is in my office. All the people come in and think it's plastic. Well, no, it's real. It's just, it's not an apple. So what am I trying to say? Here's the danger. If all we do is inspect fruit and we kind of are inspecting our own fruit and think, well, I must be a Christian. I'm, you know, producing fruit, right? Well, is it godly fruit or is it artificial fruit? Because you know what? It won't last. If you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and own power, you're trying to produce, you're trying to, you know what? A banana tree does not have to strain. An apple tree does not have to go, there's an apple. Why? Because the natural result of a healthy apple tree is what? Apples. And you're not going to find an orange on an apple tree. If you do, it's because you put it there. And so there ought to be evidence in our life that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. So how do we know? In fact, I think he really turns a little bit, certainly by verse 9, to speak back to Christians who may be saying, is he talking to us? Let me read these last few verses and we're done. Verse 7. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it was also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the rain's falling. There's such a thing as common grace. Yeah, you're receiving some of the gift of God. The rain's falling on the good ground and the bad ground. And fruit's being born. There's vegetation that's springing up that should be useful. But among some of it is thorns and thistles. In fact, Jesus tells the parable about the workers that have planted. They thought good seed. They wake up one morning and it appears to be thorns growing up in the, among the wheat. There's tares there. And they go to the landowner and say, what should we do? Should we pull it up? He says, no, because when you pull it up, you might destroy some of the others. So just wait to the harvest time. And in the harvest time, we're going to separate it. And the tares will be burned. 
the wheat will be stored in my barn. So he's writing this to a group of people. Many of them are still going to church. They're hearing the letter read in front of the church. But they've never come to faith in Christ. They're in a dangerous position. Because he said, those that are worthless, you're close to being cursed. What does he mean? The time is short. You're good for nothing. And the time is short when judgment is going to take place. And so verse 9, he finally says, but beloved. It's the only time he uses that word in the whole book. The word beloved is used throughout the New Testament. Paul used it a lot. He used it to speak to followers of Christ. I think by verse 9, he's saying, hey, you're hearing this letter read in your church and you're wondering, is he talking to me? Well, examine yourself. Are you a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? If so, I don't believe he's talking to you in the first eight verses. By verse 9, he says, hey, I'm persuaded. I'm convinced of better things concerning you. And things that accompany salvation, what are those things? Well, some of them are fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you look at your life and see, I've seen growth in my life. If you've been a Christian for a year, you ought to be able to look back over the last year and see change taking place. If you don't, you need to be asking the question, why not? Have I genuinely come to faith in Christ? Because if you have, He's begun a work in you that He'll complete. If you've got a pen and paper, write down some verses. I just want to share a few verses just for comfort as we close. Romans 8.16. Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. If you're here this morning you're wondering, you're questioning, ask God, God, am I really a child of God? His Spirit, if you're a child of God, is resident within you. He bears witness with your spirit. John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Here's the good news. I think sometimes we think it's through my effort that I keep salvation. No. It wasn't through my effort that I got saved, and it's not through my effort that I keep it. It's through Him who's drawn me to Himself. It's through Him who's holding on to me and promised to never let go. Romans 8, verses 35 and then 38 and 39. The writer Paul, no, the writer of Romans is Paul. He says, Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the last one, Philippians. Paul also writing, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Where there is life, there is growth. And if you're hearing this message this morning, you're thinking, hey, am I one of the people that the writer of Hebrews is talking to? Ask yourself the question, has there ever been a time in your life where you've acknowledged before God, I'm a sinner separated from God. And I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. Have you ever come to faith in Christ? Not asking you whether you're a church member. Not asking you if you've done some religious things. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've been a member of a church for a long time. Can you look back over your over the course of your life with Christ and see growth taking place. You may not be where you want to be.
but can you see that there's been a change taking place in your life? Then you know this. God's made you a promise. He's brought you to himself, and he's promised to keep working in your life until the day he sees you face to face. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, my prayer this morning has been this passage does not become more confusing for folks, but hopefully more clear. God, thank you that if I'm a child of God, if if the folks in this place are a child of God, it's because you have been active. You have drawn us to yourself. You brought us to a place of repentance where you've offered mercy, grace. You have forgiven us of our past. And we don't have to look back. We don't have to go back. We can press on to maturity. But God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, God, maybe they've done all the things they thought were necessary because they've done a lot of good things. But they've never come to faith in Christ. Today, Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Let me say one last thing before I close this in prayer. Just look at that. There's people that wonder about the unpardonable sin. They wonder about, well, hey, is it have I already crossed that line? Listen, if you're here today and you want to give yourself to Christ, you want to place faith in Christ, that's evidence that you haven't crossed some line of unforgiveness. Because God's drawing you to himself. So that's good news. Let me continue praying. Bow your heads. Father, again, thank you. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you're holding on to us and nothing can take us away from you or snatch us out of your hand. Lord, you give comfort to those here today who need that witness of the Spirit that they're children of God. And Lord, if there's anyone who does not know you, God, I pray today would be the day that they talk to someone, either me at the back, one of our staff, somebody with their group, somebody they trust their relationship with Jesus. So that they could know that they know that they know that they're a child of God. In Christ's name, amen.